0: As you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, one of the biggest challenges of creating, producing, and hosting this show has also been one of the greatest gifts. I'm talking about the way SSR has pushed me to get uncomfortable, and to get comfortable being uncomfortable, with some of my own blind spots. Blind spots with respect to race, to privilege, to politics, to identity, and the list goes on. I have learned so much in the conversations I've had with my guests about these subjects over the last two years, and it's forced me to face that I'm not always as educated or informed as I think I am or would like to be, but I'm always working on it, learning to walk my talk, be more empathetic, and broaden my own understanding. The conversation you're about to hear is a great example of all of this. On episode 88, my guest and I discussed Louise Erdrich's middle grade novel, The Birchbark House. It was published in 1999, when it was also a National Book Award finalist for young people's fiction. In The Birchbark House, we meet a young indigenous girl named Omakayas, who lives with her family in the Ojibwe community near present-day Lake Superior in 1847. We follow Omakayas' journey through the four seasons of her eighth year, during which her family works together to survive increasingly difficult weather conditions and faces the horrifying realities of the smallpox genocide caused by white settlers. During this time, Oma is also coming to terms with her own connection to nature and navigating feelings of grief and loss. The book is absolutely beautiful and it opens up opportunities for discussions about so many things. For good reason, we spend a lot of time on this episode talking about the embarrassing gaps in knowledge that so many Americans, myself included, have about these historical indigenous experiences and about what that really means for us as a society. We talk about how a book like The Birch Bark House is absolutely essential reading for anyone who has only ever read about this piece of American history through the eyes of white people. We also chat more broadly about white discomfort and how challenging it can be to process the problematic nature of things we loved growing up. I am so grateful to today's guest for taking on these important. important. Important topics with me. Uli Baitar Cohen is the creator and editor of the Subway Book Review, a social media movement to help people discover books, places, and people. Uli's work has been featured in New York Magazine, Esquire, Vogue, Glamour, Forbes, and The Guardian, among many other publications. She has worked in media for the past decade and has created content and experiences for The Washington Post, Here Magazine, Nike, Ace Hotel, Interscope, Adidas, and The Wing, where she also hosts a monthly book club. Uli is currently working on her first book. Between the Lines, Stories from the Underground, which is coming from Simon & Schuster in 2021. She lives in Brooklyn and loves New York City to pieces. Follow Uli and the Subway Book Review on Instagram at Subway Book Review. It's a super cool feed, and I know you're going to love it. Thanks so much to Uli for making the time to be a guest on this episode. If you're not following SSR on social media yet, I would also humbly encourage you to do so. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find SSR on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast. I love posting things about my reading life and occasionally my personal life on Instagram, especially. I also have a lot of fun seeing what episodes of SSR you're listening to and loving there. You can be part of that by taking a screenshot of this episode wherever you're tuning in, posting that photo to your Instagram story, and tagging ssrpod. You might even consider adding a caption that says what you're doing while you listen. To help spread the SSR love even further, you may want to leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes. The more ratings and reviews the show has, the more visible it becomes to potential new listeners. So if you think that other bookworms would appreciate what's happening around here, this is a great way to bring them into the listener community. For what it's worth, I also really appreciate those ratings and reviews. There are two other things you can do to support SSR and keep the show going strong. The first is to check out our podcast merch at www.ssrpodcast.com shop. At that link, you'll find SSR bookmarks, stickers, tote bags, and t-shirts, all of which are extremely cute. The second thing you might want to consider is becoming a Patreon sponsor. All of the details are available at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast, or when you click support at www.ssrpodcast.com. But here's the gist. You contribute a few dollars every month, as little as just one dollar, to SSR's production, and you get cool rewards like newsletters, bonus episodes, and book club chats in return. Our Patreon community is now 30 patrons strong. Thanks to each and every one of you for the love and support. You help make SSR possible every single week. I have one last thing to share with you before Uli and I dive into our conversation about the Birch Bark House, and it's Libro.fm. FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a 3-month audiobook membership for the price of just 1 month with code SSRPOD, and with that, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR podcast. Hi, Uli. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. And we're talking all about The Birchbark House today, which I have to say is a book that I was unfamiliar with. And having now read it, I'm so thrilled that you put it on my radar. I'd love if you could share a little bit to get us started about why you suggested this book to me if you read it before. Um, just kind of like the story behind why you wanted to discuss it.
1: Yeah. So full disclosure, I've never read The Birchbark House by Louise Erdrich before in my life. I came upon it because this podcast gave me the great idea to look into American YA. And I say American because I was born and raised in Germany, so my reading experience as a young reader was super different, I thought, probably from that of a reader here in America. And so I was kind of, you know, tumbling through the internets and was looking around at what my options were. And you had made some great suggestions. But I thought I really wanted to read an Indigenous story. I think that we're not reading those stories enough. And if we're reading them, they're often not written by an Indigenous writer through their own lens. And I came across the Birch bark House, and I thought it sounded so good. You have a female protagonist in the form of a young girl called Omakayas. Don't know if I said that correctly.
0: Please forgive if I didn't. I think you um, did. I looked up the pronunciation before because I wanted to make sure that sounds right to me.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we follow the protagonist in the form of a young girl named Omakayas. And we follow her through the seasons, which I thought was also just so lovely in terms of getting back in touch with nature. And the
0: book exceeded all of my expectations. Wasn't it so good? It was so good and I have to say that I had some preconceived notions about Louise Erdrich only because she was required reading for me when I was in high school and for some reason I think I read one of her books multiple times like several teachers assigned the same book or part of the book so I felt as though I read her a lot in high school and it was never my choice and so I knew that she was a wonderful author and I really appreciated the quality of her work but I had this weird preconception about her because it had always been introduced to me as like must-do reading in high school rather than like elective reading and I didn't know that she'd written children's books. The Birch Bark House was actually her first ever venture into children's books. It was written in 1999 and so when you suggested it I was like oh here we go back to my like you know required reading in high school but knowing that she's such a beautiful writer I was curious to see how her talents and abilities translated into children's writing. And I'm so glad that you did that research and tracked this book down because as you said, it's such an important perspective. As listeners know, we've covered a few books about Indigenous people or that mention Indigenous people on the podcast, and they've created really interesting conversations about the problematic ways in which we bring those communities into our American literature and sort of the many blind spots that these authors have to those communities. And so it makes me so happy to know that this book and the books that follow it in the series are out there as a companion to all of those books that really have so many gaps that need to be filled in. And, and I think it should go without saying that Laura Ingalls Wilder's books, the Little House series, while beloved as literary artifacts in so many ways, really have have created a lot of problems for people, and that it's. Lacked so much like real information about the struggles that indigenous people dealt with um, as a result of American settlers. And so I, what I would say after reading this book is that no child should read "Little House on the Prairie" without also reading the Birch Bark House," because I think it fills in so many of the gaps that we talked about on the episode we did about that book on the podcast.
1: Well, you know what's so interesting? Laura Ingalls Wilder is the other author I was considering. And I was super not familiar with her from my own reading life because we really didn't read her, or I didn't read her in my in my German childhood reading. And I know a lot of American friends who reference her, who bring her up as someone who was, of course, on their bookshelf, who was super influential as a children's book author to them. And I looked into it and I was like, oh no, we cannot. Like, we just can't. Like, I was so not... On that vibe, I was not interested. And I really also could feel the problematic themes and issues, you know, just in the descriptions of the books right away. And felt that I really wanted to hear a different voice. And I'm seeking that out anyway in my reading and in my work and in my, you know, in the books that I highlight and the readers I highlight on Subway Book Review, which is a project that I've been doing in a movement it has been called for the last six years. And so I felt that I really needed needed to just do a tiny bit more research. And you know what? That tiny bit of research always pays off. I encourage everyone to do that. And I think you're absolutely right. We're all hopefully coming to the realization that if we only read white authors, we're not well-read. We need to read outside of the books that are put in front of us naturally. We need to do the digging we need to do the research often we don't even need to dig so deep um, in the case of Louise um, Erdrich she's of course an incredibly prolific author I also found out that she has a bookstore called the birch bark bookstore which I think is so cool yeah and they hold meetings there and meetups and workshops and they have indigenous medicine available for sale like they go beyond book they're the they go beyond the books they're really giving access and insight Into the indigenous life. And I think all of these things that I just learned by picking up the birch bark house have been so enriching. I learned that there's a website that um, has recorded the sounds of the birch bark house. And on that website, you can hear the language as it's pronounced properly, and you can learn sentences, and you can just. Listen to the words so that you can say them correctly. And I just think that is so amazing that that's out there. And I'm so grateful for it, aside from the fantastic storytelling that just really brought me back to the stories that I did love as a child so
0: much. Yeah, I I think that what's important to note, and, and we talk quite a bit on the podcast about the dangers of cancel culture and how... I think sometimes in our world today, there's this feeling that it has to be all or nothing. We have to either embrace a person or an idea or a work, or we have to completely quote-unquote cancel it. Um, and so much of what we do on the show, of course, is to revisit books from decades and decades ago that are honestly quite problematic and would certainly qualify for what some people might call a cancel. Um, but I think the beauty of a work like The Birch Bark House is that it offers a really nice complement to a book like Little House in the Prairie, that is so problematic and has become such a hot button book um, in 2020 for good reason. So that we don't necessarily have to cancel Laura Ingalls Wilder because she has made her contributions to American literature, but we can also say, you know what? There's some things in this book that really are not fair or okay or right. And luckily, we can also introduce young people to a book by Louise Erdrich, who is an Indigenous author herself and has all of these fascinating perspectives and information to offer. And we can now have a better rounded perspective perspective on history that readers years ago wouldn't have had access to. So um, in this time of cancel culture, I personally am a proponent of looking for books the way that you did to fill in the gaps in the stories that we've been told for all these years so that we can at least sort of embrace the parts of books that are problematic, that are actually enjoyable, um, and also have healthy debates and conversations about the parts that are not so wonderful and bring in some other sides of that same story.
1: Yeah, certainly. And look, there are authors like Enid Blyton is an author that I loved as a child. I think in America it was the Famous Five. Is that correct? In German, they were called the Five Friends would be like the direct translation. Yes. But I think here it was called the Famous Five. I was a gigantic fan of adventure stories, couldn't get enough of that. And today, Blyton is definitely billed and criticized for having written elitist, sexist, and racist tones into her books. And I really truly think that we do not now go and promote Enid Blyton because her books were written at a time and a place and they have already, for example, been consumed by me. But it's good for me to understand that what systems I was in back then as a child, right? And like what informed me and what shaped my views. And if I read about an author now or find out about an author who I read when I was younger and maybe didn't have the, the mindset to look for those undertones or blatant descriptions that, of course, now as an adult, I can clearly identify as wrong, it's good to go back and to also say, huh, OK, that informed me at the time. And what does that mean in terms of my worldview and how that was shaped through story? And I actually asked my mom to go. uh, My parents still live in Germany in my childhood home where I was born and raised, uh, never moved once in our life. So that house is full of all of everything. Wow. Also um, still of my childhood books, turns out. And uh, she went into the basement and she dug through the you know, through like, um, through the stowaways. And she totally found some of my, my most beloved books from back in the day and sent me pictures of it because, you know, I was like, I'm going on this podcast. We're talking about the books that shaped me as a kid. And like, you know, what's important to know about this. And it was such a thrill to see my old friends. I can't even begin to tell you, like there was also, there was so much good stuff in there. There was, uh, you know, of course, Astrid Lindgren, uh, who wrote about so many cool girls, like Pippi Longstocking, of course. But there was
0: also—I don't know if you ever met her. Her um, one of the other characters was Rania. The robber's daughter? I've actually heard of her, but only because we did an episode about the brother's Lionheart on the podcast, and the guest oh. on that episode um, was familiar with all of Astrid Lindgren's work, and, and she mentioned um, that other character who had been one of her favorites when she was growing up. I believe her mother was German, and so she grew up with those books around her.
1: Yeah. So, there, you know, there's Lotta, there's, there's Pippi, there's Ronya, and there are all of these young girls who are adventurous and who are living life on their own terms and who are, are, they're going out into the world unafraid. And I was like, yeah, I loved them, you know? Like, did they motivate me to pack my bags at age 18 and move to the United States by myself? We don't know, but maybe... Maybe they they did. did. I think they helped. We don't know, you know. And then I also saw that I loved ghost stories and like stories about spirits and creatures and vampires. And I think that the Birchbark House had so much of that spirit world in it. I just really really loved seeing it and like not to give too much away because I really hope people pick up the book or reread it if they haven't read it in a while but you know there's like um, there's like literally the spirit world of like the ancestors and the bear clan that Omakaya belongs to whose voices she hears but then there's also the crow as this animal who she can communicate with and they build a relationship and kind of learn from each other and help each other grow I'm crazy for those kind of stories. I
0: love them. They make my heart so happy. I loved the fact that nature really was a character in this book. That was also one of my favorite parts. I'm an animal lover and I was reading this book while I was in an airport waiting to fly home and I Mm. hadn't seen my dog in a week and everybody who listens to the podcast knows how much I love my dog. I, I was like oh I'm really relating to the way that is connecting with all of these animals if only because I'm somebody who was raised with pets and I always had animals around me and I feel very lucky that I have a family that sort of instructed me to embrace animals and and to be respectful to nature. Um, And so I loved that, that Omakias was so tied in, not only to the animals that were around her, but also the trees and the roots. There's a whole conversation that she has with her grandmother about the fact that the roots are talking to her. And and that's a part Mm -hmm. of nature that... I don't even think about that much. And and part of that is because I live in New York City. But, um, you know, even when I do leave the city and I'm outside and I'm appreciating the sky and the water and the trees and the grass, I I honestly don't always think to that level. And so to get into the head of somebody who's truly been raised in nature, to respect it, to understand it, and to say, oh, even the roots are a part of this narrative— That was a really interesting perspective and I think really speaks to this cultural tradition of these indigenous communities who respect nature and have a real relationship with it.
1: Yeah, it was so humbling to read about how Omakaya's family traveled across the island and how they inhabit different parts of the island at different times of the year. And because the book is structured in the seasons, you feel their hardships during the winter months where they also experience tremendous loss. And you really feel the winter thawing when they're entering spring and what spring really used to mean for people in terms of that survival and that rebirth. And I'm a huge believer in us needing to get reconnected to that. I live in New York City, I live in Brooklyn, but I'm really reconnecting with seasonal living lunar living I've been living um, according to the lunar cycles for the last 2 years and we can do that any place and anywhere and there's so many good guides out there literal in terms of like book shape but also spiritual guides who are re-enlivening these traditions that used to be part of human nature. And, you know, literally human nature, right? It's like, it, it's that we're together. We're not separate from the earth. We're we're part of it. And living it more in accordance with the season and with natural cycles has just totally changed me as a person and has made me so much more satisfied and uh, has
0: brought me just so much more light and joy. That's fascinating. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that at some point. And- it's interesting that you connected with Omakaias and her community and her family and the way that they are tied into the seasonality of the earth in a similar way and i, I did think it was interesting and and i like the word that you used humbling and um, because of course like living here in new york city the way we do winter rolls around and i'm like oh it's so cold to walk to the subway like this is going to be my challenge for the next mm-hmm. three to four months and like this is going to be such a pain, which it is. You know, I, I won't take that away. But the fact that Omakayas and her family, their whole world shifts with each season, and their goals change, and their daily routines have to change, and their fight for survival has to change with each season, mm-hmm. um, definitely puts the inconveniences that come with seasonal changes in my own life in perspective.
1: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think also the season of awareness is really beautifully described and also painfully described because I thought, didn't you think it was so interesting? Um, so the book is set in the 1800s, I think, right? Like 1847, yep, maybe? 1847. Um, and you really, really understand that indigenous peoples are inhabiting this land and that settlers and, you know, white settlers and uh, colonizers are landing in their area. And you feel you start to feel their presence throughout the book in a very subtle way at first through the first seasons. And then as winter approaches, the white settlers become a threat and i think it's so interesting that as the land is really truly like blanketed in this white snow and this white threat in form of people is also encroaching on omakaya's and her family you really feel that it is not only changing their life, but also costing some of them their life. And I thought that that was so impressively handled and masterfully communicated. If I would read that as a kid, I would get it 100% without feeling like I was being educated on something or like I was told something that was left open for my interpretation in terms of the facts. I thought that that was just mind-blowing, how on an emotional level that was communicated. Like in the book, there's not like, and then it was the year so-and-so, and the settlers came and landed in this city. That's not at all how this is described here in the story. It's totally an emotional understanding of this stealing of land and of rights and of all of the things that occurred. But it's, yeah, it's just communicated in a very deeply emotional way, I think.
0: And everything is intensifying at the same time, slowly but surely. Mm. And in one of the reviews that I read, I can't remember which one, but I'll link all of the reviews that I found in the show notes for this episode. Um, The reviewer mentioned how this is really a book about the forces that are happening outside of the community's control, Um, weather, elements, and then of course, as you mentioned, the white settlers and how all of these forces are encroaching at the same time and Mm. also growing in intensity and I thought that the way the conversations about the settlers was introduced was so interesting because in some ways it's a situation that so many kids and even adults can can relate to in that every kid knows the feeling of starting to overhear conversations among grown-ups in your life Um, who are talking about things that they don't want you to hear about, who are sort of closing the door or whispering, um, trying to keep things off your radar, and how scary that can be when you stumble into those conversations. And then when you start to sense that those conversations are happening more frequently and you're starting to pick up on patterns of behavior. Um, So I think what's, what's really great is that almost any kid can relate to that experience. And I pulled out a few of the quotes from the book that I think really speak to this. Louise Erdrich writes, All of the Ojibo would be safe on their own land farther west, Albert was saying. No one would bother them. Yes, there were hazards on the way. Dakota war parties, hunger, the threat of winter's dire weather. He'd rather not go. Still, said Jolly Albert, he had moved before when the waves of white people lapped his feet. At one point, Omakaias' father says, they are like greedy children. He's speaking of the white settlers here. Nothing will ever please them for Long. And then the author goes on to write, It seemed to Omakayas that every time the grown-ups began to talk, they discussed travel routes west. They argued whether the pressure of so many newcomers was going to send them the way of so many others. There was now constant talk of government intentions, plans to meet in council, mm. invitations to smoke. And so that sort of, like, sense of impending doom and, like, not mm-hmm. quite understanding what the grown-ups are talking about is relatable to, I think, almost anyone. And then, obviously, we have this sense of the stakes being so much higher than what most of us can even imagine um, in that not only are these people's homes at risk but their lives are at risk because of these white settlers who are coming in so what I think is so great about this book is that there's these very relatable experiences that as you said can sort of serve to give young readers a sense of, of education about what was really happening in this period for these indigenous communities without making them feel like they can't understand it or without making making Mm -hmm. them feel like it's sort of being taught to them, which feels like a weird thing to say. But I think that that's what happens sometimes with historical fiction um, is that kids like aren't as interested because they feel like it's so instructional. And this feels like it's being fed to them in a way that's very relatable, no matter what your experience is.
1: Yeah. And I think that is, um, yeah, that's a very good point. It's it's relatable. I think it's yet told from such a distinct point of view and that's what makes it right when you make the personal really personal that is when it works and I think that Louise Erdrich did that masterfully because you really feel the culture in the book that is the utmost present one and she also does that by, um, she does that for example by including storytelling within the book, right? Mm, I like, love um, that. Where the spirit tales and the folklore and just like, you know, the stories from the from the clan that the bear clan would pass on from generation to generation, you get that too and you have like grandma's story and I think her father Tells a story, and there are these metaphors, and they illustrate the longevity of the culture that is present in the book. I thought that was so cool. I have not seen that in a while. You know, like that to me is like such a beautiful, imaginative experience to suddenly be like, okay, and now the character in the book is telling you a story like you're sitting around the campfire together and you get to hear about the ancestors. I was like, that is so cool. That is so amazing. And the
0: stories were good. I can't think of any examples right now, but I do feel like maybe when I was a kid, I read books that had sort of a similar format in that there were characters telling stories and those would be inset within the book as a whole. And I feel like a lot of times those stories weren't very good or interesting. And I just wanted to get back to the actual action of the book that I had picked up. But the stories in this book were really interesting and beautiful. And I would have loved to read more of any of them as well. So... Louise Erdrich is really just such a master. Um, She's a beautiful writer. I don't think that there's much that she can do wrong. And I love the way that she's highlighting her own cultural traditions in this book. And storytelling is a great way that she's done that.
1: Yeah, 100%. I also really think that she, she has so much love in this book. Like the love that she has for her people and for her history is so present in this book. You can feel it. And I think that... The amazing details, like I, ju- I smelled those meadows. I heard those birds. She took me there. I really remembered that as an adult, it's so good and healthy to read, to pick up a YA book or you know something that's deemed for a younger audience because I really, my imagination was stoked to read these words and to be fed this amazing story and to feel this really true love in the book. I thought that that was such a good reminder. And I know that there's, what, there's like five books in the Birch Bark series. Yeah, there's I was four more like, after this. Yeah. Here I come.
0: It's your new reading project.
1: Of, <laughs> a new reading project, right. Because we leave Omakaya's ass. She is really becoming a young woman, right? Like she she grows from a girl into this young woman. Mm-hmm. And she's owning her powers. And she is owning her history, and there's one description you mentioned a quote do we have time for me to mention a quote oh, because i yeah, was like no, oh it's go so right good. ahead i love that it just makes me so excited about this character which to me was like Obviously, you know, like as a kid, I would have wanted to be her. And I mentioned that she has this, um, she has this crow, Andeg, who is her friend and who she communicates with and who hangs out with her. And then one day, toward the end of the book, Andeg flies off her shoulder and disappears into this midst of a flock of other birds. Uh, breaking and my heart happened, in the process, by the way. Oh, it was so painful. Here, here's is what is written about this, uh, this friend leaving her, uh, Omar Khayaz felt her heart squeeze shut painfully as the birds passed out of sight he was gone. Maybe she should have cut away essential feathers from his wings, but she couldn't stand to think of him a captive. No, she decided, though her heart hurt, it was better that he joined with his own kind. He wasn't human, no matter how often he said, giggle pinch, or greeted her at the door, croaking out, anin, anin. stole stolen hoarded bits of bright cloth and shiny metal shards he wasn't a human, he was still a crow, and she couldn't change that. She couldn't change that any more than she could change being who she was. Omakayas, who heard the voices of plants and went dizzy, omakayas who talked to bear boys and received their medicine omakayas who missed her one brother and resented the other who envied her sister omakayas the little frog whose first step was a hop omakayas who'd lost her friend she thought she had cried all the tears that she had to cry but she still found there were some left for andeg omakayas put her hands to her face and sobbed until she felt just enough better after all she thought andeg was wild and she had always known it always expected this moment to Come. The thought comforted her. There in the yard, looking into the heart of the fire, Omakaya suddenly experienced a strange awareness. Like Andeg, she couldn't help being who she was. Omakaya is in this skin, in this place, in this time. Nobody else. No matter what, she couldn't ever be another person or really know the thoughts of anyone but her own self. She closed her eyes, and for a moment, she felt as though she were falling from a great height plummeting through air and blackness, tumbling down with nothing to catch at. With a start of fear, she opened her eyes and felt herself gently touch down right where she was, in her own body, here. Oh, it's so
0: good. It's so good. <laughs> it's, you know? I had pulled out some of those lines, too, because I, I especially love that section where she's talking about how she can't change who Andeg is any more than she can change who she is. And oh. she goes on to like really list out all of these things that make her special and inform her identity. And I love that. I just love the way Erdrich is so direct about Omakaya's coming to terms with like the parts of her that maybe she didn't understand before or the parts that maybe she even was ashamed of before and just like Mm. owning them and I love that I think you know really the purpose of YA and middle grade books in general is to like help kids sort of understand like what identity is all about and some authors do this so much better than others and certainly I think over time a lot of authors have come to understand sort of the weight of that responsibility and Louise Erdrich does not mess around with that and she's so clear Mm. and so strong in the Way that she's showing young readers what it means to like really lean into who you are and I think the fact that Omikias is eight years old is really amazing and speaks to the fact that growing up in her community in her time when there were such high stakes there was such pressure I think to grow up maybe faster than kids now would feel comfortable with or even more than adults would feel comfortable with their kids growing up and I think when you think about like the intended audience for this book the sort of reading level I would say is more maybe a middle school level. I found um, some teacher guides online that suggest this book as a read aloud for third graders, but um, as assigned reading for maybe fifth, sixth, or seventh graders. So they're all older than eight years old, but I think it's sort of interesting to think about the fact that her experiences in this world, where she's established herself so strongly in that passage that you just read, she really reads more like a 12 or 13 year old. She's coming into her own at the very young age of eight.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And but I think we can relate to that, especially as women, because I do think that we find our way into our body over and over again at different times throughout our life. And some of us, you know, are blessed with a very intact childhood. And maybe we find into our body, you know, like as we're horseback riding and are galloping through the fields. And then some of us are also faced with trauma and have maybe experiences with our body that we're not within our control But what is described here is super relatable because I bet you that maybe, and I have no idea, I have no children of my own, nor have I ever gone through a pregnancy, so I do not know if this is true. But I imagine if you had just given birth and you had just pushed this baby out in the world, you'd be like, yeah it kind of left me and now I'm coming back into my body as a mother without this person inside of me I don't know if that's a good metaphor for bird and girl but kind of sure I guarantee you that you could read that passage throughout many many times in your life especially as a woman and could be like yeah I remember that I remember when my body changed or when I went through a moment in time where I had a very specific experience with my body and then coming back to owning that and to owning who you are
0: uh, how cool is that that's just such a gift to be reminded of yeah it's very powerful to read um, mm. and i love we that we love it ki- we love it we are very pro that all ten, of that 10 ten, yes. Yes. 10 10 read it 10 out of 10 would recommend and i love that young readers in particular are getting a chance to understand that experience or at least a part of that experience with a book like this let's talk about what's really a huge turning point moment for omakias and her family I don't think that any conversation about this book would be complete without touching on it. When the family attends this dance, which is a huge deal in the community, I was really excited to read about the dance personally because, you know, we had been reading a lot about survival to this point and mm-hmm. how hard it is to be living here and the fears and the stresses and how hard it is even to be a kid. I mean, Omikias' chores sound really hard. She has to prepare oh my animal hides and like when her <sighs> dad comes home from a trip, He gets all of her siblings kind of like fun, pretty toys, and he brings her a tool that she's supposed to use to prepare the hides of dead animals to be turned into moccasins and other useful items. So, like, that's her gift is... is can you please use this tool to do more chores? Everything is very hard. So when I find out that there is a dance, I was like, oh, I'm really interested to see what this is going to be like, especially because the family is so excited and their mother is preparing these beautiful clothes for Omikias's older sister, Angeline, to wear. So I, I was excited, but unfortunately, things take a very, very upsetting turn when an outsider comes to the dance and some of the older people in the community are concerned right away because it's clear that he is not well and they all assume rightfully that he has smallpox, and so he's now brought smallpox into the community. It's not long after that that many members of the community and unfortunately of Omakaias's family begin to show signs of smallpox themselves. And, and here again, I'll say that this is why this book needs to become more a part of our conversations about books that American children need to read. Because, quite frankly, and, and I have absolutely, I have absolutely nothing but judgment from the schools that I went to because of this. But I, I mean, we learned about smallpox briefly as part of my American history classes, but never in graphic detail. I mean, we, it was a point in a much larger curriculum about this period in history, and that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. And I think to experience the smallpox epidemic in this way, to feel the fear of seeing this outsider come to your community, bring this disease that wasn't there before, cause all of these deaths from one like drop into a dance, um, to sort of watch like the physical symptoms manifest and, and to sort of feel the fear with Omakaias as each member of her family is taken by it. Everyone needs to read this book or at least that section of this book as part of their American history classes because people need to understand like what this epidemic was really like.
1: And, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to say that it was not an epidemic because it was part of a genocide, Yeah, you know? And we have to keep that in mind. And there is not nearly enough education, conversation, and also ownership on the people whose ancestors were the colonizers who were deliberately committing this genocide. Because what's described here in the book is that And I think it's described in a very ambiguous way. Like you said, it's described that an outsider shows up and the outsider is ill. There's no description of a deliberate act in that particular description. But we know, based on history, based on facts, that blankets infected with smallpox were deliberately given to indigenous peoples As an act of genocide. Yes. And the lack of attention to this horrible fact in America is mind-blowing and heartbreaking.
0: Yes, I I couldn't agree more and I think that reading this book was a reminder for me of that having been educated in the American public school system. The lack of education and conversation around that is horrific and I certainly hope that that has changed in the 15 years since I was in these schools and taking these classes. Somehow I feel like it hasn't changed enough. I um, don't
1: think it has. Yeah. It's the is the is the hot mess that we're in because That conversation is one that America is simply not, it's it's been erased. And we know this from Black history, Indigenous history. America is very, very good at erasing historical facts when it's an inconvenient truth. I say that as a person who, again, I grew up in Germany and I don't want to go too dark on us, but I will mention Mm. this for a moment. How we brought up in the school system is that We read about World War II. We read about Anne Frank. We read about the genocide uh, that was committed on the Jewish population in Germany from the time I was in fourth grade. So you start learning about it in school, in German and in uh, history lessons. You learn about the history of your country and you visit concentration camps and you watch films and you see it in its most gruesome shape shape you're really not spared details and you continue throughout your entire education from the age you know I would say like 10 until you finish your high school education we have well I went back then it was still 13 years in total of schooling so until you're almost you know 19 some of us are 20 so for for 10 years of your life you intimately have to face this part of your people's doing and your history, and you have to reckon with the fact that some of your family members were perpetrators, some of your family members were victims, and you have to figure it out and piece it together for yourself. And when I speak to American Friends about this, there's really not an equivalent in terms of education and dialogue around certain parts of history that are so part of the fabric of the American life.
0: I would absolutely agree again and this book was probably the closest thing that I've encountered which is embarrassing given that it's a book for children and I'm almost 30 years old and was went through my whole life in the American school system and never encountered something this honest and graphic Um, and again this is a book written for children and so it's really not nearly as graphic as it could or should be. So I will say that I think this is an important piece of work for any American who is listening to this who feels as though they need to come to terms with this very real part of history Um, and whether they want to or not they probably should. So I feel that it was an important education for me in that respect. So I'm ashamed that it took me this long to read it or to experience that perspective.
1: yeah, and I think that kind of feeling is one that's really common among the white population. Yeah. you know, and this discomfort, there is a really, really big white discomfort that is happening at this moment in time. But this white discomfort is useful. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that we're going to be able to admit blind spots that we have willingly or subconsciously. But that's the first step. This discomfort is the first step in a really necessary conversation. And if it's a children's book that gets us there, then that is amazing and just as right as if we're reading Louise Erdrich's next book. She has one coming out in March. Right, it's called *The Night Watchmen*. It's a novel for adults. I'm super hyped to read it. And uh, if we start there, or if we start at the Birch Bark House, it really doesn't matter. But what matters is that we read books. By people who, you know, I get in the book community, we would call out like hashtag own voices, yep. storytellers who are writing about their own experiences and their own history and their own ancestors so that we really get it from the perspective um, of that culture and of those people. And I think there are so many amazing Uh, resources out there, right? Like there are amazing indigenous book bloggers. I'm going to call out a couple of them. There is um, at Thunderbird Woman Reads. There is at Native Girls Reading. There are so many other ones and they make such fantastic book recommendations so that you really get it straight from the source. And I think that's so good for all of us, you know, to say how good did it feel to watch Parasite, right? Like that gave you such a different relationship. relationship to the film and to South Korea and to the filmmaker and to everything because you just felt the roots and you felt the love and you felt the criticism that was in the film um, just expressed in such a personal way. So these resources are out there. There are so many great stories to discover, so many amazing storytellers who can lead us into a subject and our shame and our discomfort should not hold us back from that.
0: Yeah, I will say one of the unexpected gifts of doing this podcast and this project for almost two years now is that, and listeners will know this, it's forced me to really sort of openly contend with my blind spots in a lot of ways um, and to build a language around that and to be uncomfortable with sharing things that I don't feel that I learned maybe at the time when I was supposed to learn them when I was younger and and coming to those truths as an adult by discovering those own voices um and so it has been a gift even if as you said it, it comes in the form of a children's book or a children's book when you're an adult um it's still important and one of my personal goals sort of outside of my podcast reading for 2020 is to continue to build on my own own voices reading because it is critical and uh, this is just a call to all you listeners out there to like add that to your reading your list of reading goals this year because um we all need to do it and it gives us all a chance to learn and to be uncomfortable, which is a good thing, I think. One of the other things that I love the most about the way that this part of the story is told is that it also opens up this really interesting narrative about mental health and grief, which I thought was Mm -hmm. really beautiful and listeners will know that I've um, gone through two major losses in my own life in the last year. Both of my grandparents died uh, on, or two of my grandparents died on my birthday exactly a year apart over the last year. And so grief has been a fairly major part of my life for the last eighteen months or so, and so the way that Louise Erdrich writes about grief through the eyes of an eight-year-old child, I thought was really interesting. And I won't spoil because we have we've been very good on this episode so far with no hmm. spoilers, so I won't insert a spoiler here. But um, Omakayas family is deeply affected by smallpox once it enters the community and Omakias is the one who is really there helping to take care of them because for reasons that we won't share right now, she does not get smallpox and she's left really to deal with some of the feelings that are left over once everyone has gone through their smallpox journey for better or for worse. I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't reveal what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so she's left and I think anybody who's ever experienced a Loss can relate to that feeling of of being left behind and having gone through something so dark and scary. And Omakayas really watches all of this go down in her family um, and is very close physically to some tragedies. And she has to pick up the pieces. And I I think the fact that Louise Erdrich writes fairly openly and honestly about grief and even depression is really important. One of the lines that I pulled out was, "Omakayas got sick too, but not with the smallpox. A wholly different fever followed upon her family's recovery. An illness of weakness and grief. Um, and she goes on to write, "Omakayas retreated from the world. She ate less and less, thought long into the night. And I just like she clearly is, is going through depression um, and I think particularly in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there were weren't that many authors that were putting such a fine point on mental health struggles and grieving um, for children. And so I really, as sad as Mm. this is, I'm always happy when I see a children's author from you know, outside of the last few years, being honest with kids about what it looks like to experience tragedy, because unfortunately nobody is immune to these things, even if you are a kid. So I really liked the way that she wrote about that. And I do think the fact that Omakayas and her family do have this connection with nature and this spiritual connection adds it a, a unique and special Twists to the story but ultimately omakias is still coming to terms with what it feels like to like lose somebody that you love and to to sort of try to figure out what death means which is almost impossible for anyone
1: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think you also you really um are not lied to in the book as the reader Because even as the book comes to an end and uh, we leave Omakaya's, there's, I think there's a line that says, uh, you know, that her spirits are lifted, but there was an expression left around her mouth that would forever signify this hardship that she had gone through. And there's no lie about it that, of course, she'll never be the same again because there is an innocence that is taken from her by the sheer fact of growing up, plus, the experiences that she specifically has as a person and there's no uh, full circle happy ending everything is resolved here we go she's this uh, happy-go-lucky kid again and I really appreciated that too because that's not how life is and our experiences shape us And we never are able to go back to anything. What I liked about the book particularly is that she reconnects with someone who passes in her life. We're not going to spoil this. I'm trying
0: really hard. We've done Um, well so far, so. We've done okay,
1: we've done okay. (laughs) She reconnects with someone who has passed in her life through talking with this person in the spirit world. And I think that that's so important. And we in 2020 are, we're so far removed from real life cycles we're so far removed from death i think right now i mean it hits us at moments when someone passes who was a known entity to most of us and who was in the public eye but i think even then because everything is so digitally memorialized and we really don't feel the beginning and the end of in uh, the end of things anymore with like a finite feeling unless it's someone who's in our life a family member passing but even then i think it's kind of hard to reckon with how that's going down i'm sorry i'm like rambling a little bit but what i'm trying to say is beginnings and endings have really changed for us in the 21st century are we in the 21st
0: century yes we are uh
1: (laughs) check myself for a second are we it's a wednesday so it's
0: a wednesday afternoon Uh, so we have to double check
1: Have to double check what century we're in. But beginnings and endings, life cycles, uh, human evolution. We're in such a funky time right now. We're like half analog, half digital, half connected to the natural world, half connected to the digital world. I really hope that all of us have so much compassion for in the grander scheme of human evolution where we particularly at this moment in time are in because it's a very funky place to be. And we're dealing with a lot and we're reckoning with a lot. And to just have so much compassion for that, for yourself and for other people, and to also remember the good things about analog life just as much as a lot of us bemoan or celebrate the digital life.
0: Yes, I think that's very well said and parallels to human life cycles and there's lots of lots of room to draw parallels in this book to things that we're dealing with now. Often at the end of my episodes, I'll ask my guest how reading whatever book we've chosen for the show has compared to their experience with reading that book when they were a kid. And of course, it's different because neither you or I read this book when we were growing up. So I guess what I'll ask you instead is how The Birch Bark House compared to your expectations of it.
1: Oh, I mean, look, I love a fantasy novel, and I love that the bark house is completely rooted in real life, but offers these really amazing portals into imagination. And that reminded me so much of just having that feeling, right, like when I would get a new stack of books for christmas whether that stack was one book or two book or three books sometimes i had more book loot than others and i would go up in my room with the christmas cookies that i had snuck and i would crack that book open and suddenly i would be in you know this world of magic and the lords of evil and there would be friendship and love and death and that would kind of like guide us through the life of someone i just just had that feeling again of really enjoying the senses while reading, diving into a character really deeply, um, and just really truly following along and totally trusting the author to take excellent care of me. I think that was like really what I took from this. And could I have expected this? No, because I really honestly, I picked this based on a very fierce Google search, but it gave me all of that. And that's why I'm saying it was beyond, because I think that as an adult reader, I had also forgotten a little bit that something that's written for
0: a younger person is really, really taking care of those needs. I love that that was your experience. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's a really beautiful way to describe what it's like to come back to these books or even to try these books for the first time as an adult. So it always makes my heart happy to hear that my guests have had even a small piece of that experience. Other than The Birch Bark House, what else have you read lately that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Mm, Okay. So, I mean, I read, uh, I read, I read like a mad woman. So I was trying to think what comes to mind. A book that definitely comes to mind is such, a Young Age by Kylie Reed. So good, uh, so good. <laughs> we, have, we see her all over right now, as we should. That book is very much a book of the times, and there's definitely wide discomfort in it, and I think that every single person should read it because it is so, so, so well-written and so important and fantastic. But then I also am looking to, I call them shorties, uh, short little books that just kind of like perk me up in between or good for a subway ride. I read Create Dangerously by Albert Camus, and that is from a speech that he gave in the, when was it? Was it in the 1950s? Looking real quick. Yeah, 1957. He wrote the speech about the power and the responsibility of the artist. And that book is sadly and thankfully still as relevant as ever. So, I would say, you know, things that just really give me something to think about, things that uplift my spirit and my soul as I'm navigating the world as an artist and a you know, a person who is working on her integrity
0: every day, best as she can. Those are the kind of things that that speak to me right now. Thank you for sharing. I'll include links to those recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to the Birch Bark House. I really appreciate you taking the time to read the book and to have this awesome conversation about it with me, Uli. It was so nice getting to know you and chatting with you, and I just appreciate you so much. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy that I could be having this
0: conversation with you. Oh, Oh, me too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes, inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.